Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called, Who Speaks for God? It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, February 1st, 2009. Who speaks for God? And how can you know? Sometimes it feels like God is silent, as if he was speechless and not saying anything at all. The psalmists lament their unanswered prayers and sometimes portray God as unable or unwilling to talk. During a period of political anarchy in Israel's history, when every person did what was right in his own eyes, we read in 1 Samuel 3.1, In those days the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. But at other times, the problem is not a deficit of God talk, but a surplus. Plenty of people are very eager to speak for God and confident that they know the divine mind. Back in 2006, the television evangelist Pat Robertson claimed that God caused Ariel Sharon's massive stroke as punishment for conceding land to the Palestinians. Or think about your group Bible study when someone claims, God spoke to me last night and this is what he said. One thing's for sure, earnestness and sincerity are poor criteria to determine who speaks for God. Some God talk is just plain ludicrous. One night in the wee hours in the morning, a friend of mine couldn't sleep, so we got up and turned on the television. While he was channel surfing, he saw a preacher heal, and I use quotation marks, an extremely large woman. As he pressed the palm of his hand to her forehead, she collapsed backwards into the waiting arms of his assistant, only to have her wig snagged off when it brushed the buttons of his blazer. Other God talk is not only idiotic, but toxic. As when Iran's President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, or Lebanon's Hezbollah, the party of God, calls for the removal of Israel from the earth. Some God talkers claim that America enjoys an exceptional place in God's heart. Bruce Wilkinson's book, The Prayer of Jabez, makes false promises, like you can have a front row seat in a life of miracles. Most disturbing are the confident declarations made by influential Christians, like Pat Robertson, the former Jerry Falwell, who once scapegoated gays and feminists for the 9-11 attack, or Franklin Graham, Billy's son, who once advised the use of nuclear weapons against Muslim countries. Pronouncements like these do harm to the gospel, to believers, to your neighbor, and, given the unfortunate scope of their influence, to the whole world. And so, an important question arose in ancient Israel from the readings in this week's lectionary. We read the question in Deuteronomy 18, verse 21. How can we know when a message has been spoken by the Lord? 
For beginners, Israel was to categorically reject the so-called detestable ways of pagan nations. We read in Deuteronomy 18, verses 10 and 11, Let no one be found among you who sacrifices his son or daughter in the fire, who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft, or casts spells, or who is a medium or spiritist, or who consults the dead. It would be an interesting exercise to identify our own modern equivalents to these ancient practices of speaking for God. Who, for example, are our contemporary soothsayers? Instead of these detestable practices, God promised to raise up a prophet like Moses. And in Deuteronomy 18.15 we read, You must listen to him. At the simplest level, there arose in Israel the office and function of the prophets. Their job was not so much to foretell the future as it was to foretell the present from God's perspective. But even within Israel, some prophets imitated the soothsaying they were supposed to prevent. Jeremiah, for example, in chapter 23, thundered against what he called the reckless lies and false hopes prophesied by Israel's religious leaders. According to Deuteronomy 18, verses 20 and 22, presumption is the besetting temptation of those who claim to speak for God. People who speak truly for God do so with an acute sense of the audacity of what they're attempting. They sense the presumption inherent in claiming to speak for God. Who in their right mind would make such claims given the combination of human frailty and divine inscrutability? Every sane preacher has experienced the dread and the adrenaline shock of the preposterous task in some stumbling and bumbling way to speak a word that is true to God. This holy hesitancy is well-founded. In Deuteronomy, the penalty for false prophecy, for speaking wrongly about God, was death. Deuteronomy 18.20 that's a sobering reminder for those who speak of God so readily and so glibly. And in the epistle for this week, Paul warns believers who were overly confident about their Christian knowledge. We read in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 2, The person who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. <clears throat> Whereas some ministries promote personality cults, simplistic formulas, and authoritarian appeals, the desert monastics of the 4th and 5th centuries actively shunned clerical responsibility. They were decidedly reluctant to speak and act for God. John Cassian of the 5th century judged it a trick of the devil to quote, inveigle us into desiring the holy clerical office under the pretext of edifying many, end quote. And Evagrius of the fourth century described clerical aspiration as, quote, the source and root of the love of power, 
end quote. A story is told about a saint who once asked Abba Theodore, Speak a word to me, for I am perishing. To which Abba Theodore replied sorrowfully, I myself am in danger. What could I say to you? For these early ascetics, renunciation, obedience, and confession of thoughts to an elder were necessary checks on trusting your own judgment, what Isidore the priest called, of all evil suggestions, the most terrible. Uncritical acceptance of your own ideas, impulses, and inclinations was a sure sign of spirituality run amok. The monastics were especially dubious of overzealous piety that expressed itself in what Cassian called, quote, immoderate and inappropriate fasting or severe, severe vigils or inordinate praying or excessive reading, end quote. Paul insisted that concrete deeds of love accompany any claim of divine knowledge. In 1 Corinthians 8.1, we read, Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. In this week's Gospel from Mark, we read that people were amazed at Jesus' authority and his so-called new teaching. In Mark contrast to how the religious establishment operated, Jesus exemplified an authority that authenticated itself by fostering human healing and wholeness. Cassian called this, quote-unquote, integral wholeness. And we wish it not only for ourselves, but for every human being. Here, too, the ruthless realism of the monastics can save us from foolishness that masquerades as wisdom. Those grizzled monks had experienced every sort of pompous pronouncement, spiritual fraud, in pious pretense. They knew what it meant for a deluded believer to be, quote, deceived by his innumerable revelations and wrongly believe that he was a messenger of righteousness. Their antenna were especially sensitive to what Cassian called specious authority and loveless judgmentalism. Instead, they counseled an unqualified compassion towards human weakness, a consideration for frailty, and heartfelt empathy for people who struggle. Christians truly close to the heart of God, they said, quote, never frighten with bleak despair those who are in trouble or unsettle them with harsh words, end quote. They gladly, fully, and freely proclaimed that God was, quote, the gracious arbiter of hidden strength and human infirmity. They looked with a kind of overwhelming wonder at God's ineffable gentleness. I've made my share of stupid remarks. Thank God I was not on television, nor did I command an audience of millions. My poor judgment on those occasions has reinforced my beliefs about the necessity of theological modesty and the primacy of love. I do believe that God speaks today, 
but given the cacophony of voices ranging from the goofy to the godly, hearing what God says demands that we distinguish between what engineers call the signal-to-noise ratio. And now for further reflection. Do you feel that God has ever spoken to you? When and how? How do you feel when others make this claim? And finally, in your opinion, who today speaks truly for God? What is it that distinguishes them from others? For books this week, I review a title called Nothing to be Frightened of. The author is Julian Barnes, New York, Alfred A. Knopf, 2008, 244 pages. The novelist Julian Barnes was never baptized and has never attended a church service in his life, and so he's never had any faith to lose. He came by this unbelief honestly. His father was an agnostic, and his mother said that she didn't want, quote, any of that religious mumbo-jumbo, end quote. But the certainty of total extinction, both personal and cosmic, and the terror which absolute, absolute annihilation provokes in Barnes, causes him to admit in the first sentence of this book that while he doesn't believe in God, he misses him. The title for his disquis disquisition on death comes from one of his journal entries over 20 years ago. It reads, People say of death there's nothing to be frightened of. They say it quickly, casually. Now, let's say it again, slowly, with re-emphasis. There's nothing to be frightened of. Exactly where the emphasis on nothingness rightly falls is what occupies Barnes's considerable talents. The result is a book characterized by deeply personal candor and broad-ranging critical inquiry that encompasses art, music, philosophy, science, literature, and family memory. The Christian story, of course, claims that, according to 2 Timothy 2.10, Jesus conquered death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. This story succeeded, says Barnes, not because people were gullible, because it was violently imposed by throne and altar, because it was a means of social control, or because there were no other alternatives. No, says Barnes, the Christian story succeeded because it's what he calls a beautiful lie or a supreme fiction. In other words, it's the stuff of a great novel, a tragedy with a happy ending. And good novelists, says Barnes, tell the truth with lies and tell lies with the truth. And so there's always what he calls a haunting hypothetical for Barnes. What if this Christian story is true? The strictly secular materialist option is simple enough. When your heart and brain cease to function, 
your very self ceases to exist. But in this view, the self, in fact, is nothing more than random neural events. Put another way, there's no ghost in the machine to begin with, so in fact there's no self that ceases to exist. In postmodern parlance, personal identity is merely a social construction. But Barnes has nagging suspicions about this neat and clean scientific scenario. Even if they are hard to define or describe, a common sense outlook, endorsed by the vast majority of humanity that has ever lived, is that intelligence, aesthetic imagination, the moral impulse, consciousness, love, gratitude, guilt, regret, and the longing for immortality, all of these seem to point beyond themselves. They have the ring of truth that makes them hard to define by mere biology. And so Julian Barnes wonders, given his genuine lack of religious faith, is it even proper to seek and to assign any meaning to his personal story? Does his life enjoy a genuine narrative? Or is it only a random sequence of neural events that ends with total extinction, such that any and all meaning-making is what he calls pure confabulation? One thing you can be sure of, Barnes reminds us, in the end, it doesn't matter what you think. The divine reality, or lack thereof, is what it is. And so, quote, the notion of redefining the deity into something that works for you is grotesque, end quote. There's a deep irony here. In his review of the God Delusion by the Oxford atheist Richard Dawkins, Jim Holt observes that if the after-death options are either a beatific vision or extinction, then it's poignant to think that believers will never discover that they are wrong, whereas Dawkins and fellow atheists will never discover that they are right. Julian Barnes, Nothing to be Frightened of, from 2008. For film this week, I review a movie from France. The title, The Grocer's Son, from 2008. Antoine is a 30-year-old slacker who lives in Paris and is, as he says, quote, between jobs, end quote. He fancies that by leaving home 10 years earlier, he had escaped his parents' lives as boring country bumpkins. But when his father takes ill and his brother is too busy with his Parisian hair salon, Antoine returns home with his friend Claire to help his mother with their tiny general store. Back in Paris, his friend Hassan had advised Antoine that he, quote, lacked the human touch, end quote. The gist of this film is how he reconnects with his own self, with Claire, with his family, and especially with the shut-ins and pensioners of the French countryside. One customer, for example, pays for his can of peas with eggs. Another advises him that his father was gruff, but that he always took her to get her hair done. Others want to run a tab and pay when they can. 
Many are hard of hearing and can't do the arithmetic to pay. Eventually, Anton comes to respect these aging customers who depend upon him and to enjoy the life of his father that he had previously spurned. In French, with English subtitles, The Grocer's Son from the year 2008. And finally, for this week, we've posted another prayer by Walter Brueggemann, the title of which, The Noise of Politics. We watch as the jets fly in with the power people and the money people, the suits, the budgets, the billions. We wonder about monetary policy because we are among the haves, and about generosity because we care about the have-nots. By slower modes we notice Lazarus and the poor arriving from Africa, and the beggars from Central Europe, and the throng of environmentalists with their vision of butterflies and oil, of flowers and tanks, of growing things and killing fields. We wonder about peace and war, about ecology and development, about hope and entitlement. We listen beyond jeering protesters and soaring jets, and faintly we hear the mumbling of the crucified one. Something about feeding the hungry, giving drink to the thirsty, about clothing the naked, noticing the prisoners, more about the least and about holiness among them. We are moved by the mumbles of the gospel, even while we are tenured in our privilege. We are half ready to join the choir of hope, half, half afraid things might change. And in a third half of our faith turning to you, in your outpouring love that works justice and that binds us each and all to one another. So we pray amidst jeering protesters and soaring jets. Come by here and make new, even at some risk to our entitlements. Walter Brueggemann, The Noise of Politics, taken from his book, Prayers for a Privileged People. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, February 1st, 2009. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.